turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy 2, and we're going to get into the Word. And uh, let's bow our head, and we'll begin with prayer. Father, we thank you for your goodness. Lord, we come today, and we just ask you to give clarity of mind, articulation of speech, boldness of spirit. Father, to speak your word as an oracle of God. Father, not of ourselves, but what you would have us to say. And Father, we ask that each person here would have ears to hear, hearts to receive, and wills to do. And be do it, being doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving our own selves, and being transformed by the renewing of our mind, and being conformed to your image. And Father, we just thank you that as we are renewed in our mind, we're changed. Father, we're transformed. We make our bodies a living sacrifice. And therefore, we're able to prove that good and perfect Get an acceptable and perfect will of God for our lives. We thank you for that. We ask your blessing on the word today. We ask it in Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. Well, today I want to talk about how do we pray for kings. And one thing that helped me in the Bible is, as I have uh, involved myself to some degree in the, in the civics realm, in, in the political realm, and it made everything come alive. And, and when I became uh, on board with the family leader and uh, became the pastor of the board, the family leader. The Lord spoke to me and said, start teach on the prophet-king relationship. Because that's what's really missing in our culture today. That's what's really missing in the church today. I'm a word of faith guy, uh, and, I, and I'll tell you what, what, when you join understanding what the Bible says about civics, one person asked me, he says, how many scriptures or verses in the Bible do you think there are on civics? Governance, whatever, however you want to talk about it. I don't like to use the word politics, because that's really not a biblical word. That means to be ruled by the people. And so uh, I said, I don't know, how many? This guy's an attorney. He's chief legal counsel for the family leader. He's also a pastor, and, and he's really a brilliant guy. He reads through the Bible every year. And he, the Lord told him, uh, mark every single verse in the Bible that's about politics or governance, civil, the king, you know, uh, about... The, the laws and, and all that, and he said there's between three and 4,000 in the Bible. Now, how many of you think we ought to teach the whole counsel of God this morning? Amen. It's important that we do that. And I don't teach on politics, but every once in a while when it's time for, uh, you know, an election or something like that, and I think it's very important, for 300 years we had election sermons in America till in the late 1950s when LBJ submitted his Senate amendment that limited 501c3 political speech to 501c3 organizations, which includes churches, which made... Preachers think they can't talk about politics or they'll get thrown in jail, which is the furthest thing from the truth. But I, I will say this, that it's our responsibility to understand how we need to pray for those who are in authority. And it's, and it's our responsibility to understand our relationship with the civil authorities. Romans 13.4 says that the civil authorities are the ministers of God. And there are three institutions. There's the institution of the church, and it's the pillar and the ground of the truth, the Bible says in 1 Timothy uh, 3 and 15. And it is what gives direction to the family and to the civil arena, even though today we've been shut off from the civil arena, and there's great problems. And they were all three made to work together, the family, the church, and the civil authorities. And when one is sick, it infects the other two. And let me tell you something, all three of them are sick today. And we need to understand what it is that changes that. And we need the family. The family is part. Uh, the church is, is the biggest part. And, and then uh, the civil government is part. And so the, the, the pillar and the ground of the truth gives knowledge and understanding to both of the other institutions. And the ministry gifts are set in the church to perfect the saints and to bring them uh, development and perfecting and equipping so that they can do the work of the ministry. So, and that's the church does that. And the church is built on the same paradigm as the family. The family is comprised of fathers, mothers, and children. The church is comprised of elders, deacons, and congregation. The elder is like the father he leads. The deacons are like the mother who is the one called alongside to be the helpmate. And then the children and the congregation are very similar because they're the ones that are under development to be raised up to become elders and deacons themselves one day. So we understand that that's the triunity of God. God is a father. He has a son. And there is a Holy Spirit with much maternal attributes. And, you know, the Holy Spirit is called alongside to help. That's what the word paraclete means in the book of John, if you look it up in the original Greek. And so called alongside to help. So the Godhead reflects that of the family. It reflects that of the church. And it even reflects the government. You know, the, in Isaiah it says, The Lord is our lawgiver, judge, and king. And the government is a legislative branch, lawgiver, judge, judicial branch, 
and king is executive branch of government. Again, a triunity, and that's the way God builds everything. But we're getting a little off subject, so I hope you're all there in your Bible to 1 Timothy 2, and we'll begin reading there. We're going to read through verse 4. And I just want to say this. The election is about 30 days away, roughly. And some of you are very maybe disappointed in who the candidates are. I have to say myself, I'm very disappointed. I feel like the evangelical community really um, took some wrong steps here. But, uh, we, but we still have a responsibility. Can I get an amen this morning? Amen. And so 1 Timothy 2 says this, I exhort, therefore, that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and for all those that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in godliness and honesty. Now, I want to I paraphrase that. In the time that Paul spoke that, to lead a quiet and peaceable life, literally, and, and commentaries would bear this out, literally means to be unpersecuted. It, it's, the Bible understates many things. It's very understated in its language at times. But look what it says, that we might lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. So quiet and peaceable would literally mean unpersecuted in that context in that day. And then in all godliness and honesty, that would be a description of Christians living a Christian life in godliness and honesty. That would be uh, really talking about the believer. So what you could say is we need to pray for those in authority, the kings, so that we will lead an unpersecuted life as Christians. Because let me tell you something, the rest of the world, and we don't understand this very well in America today, because we have literally never seen any substantial amount of persecution against the Christian church in America until just recently. It's just starting to show its face a little bit. But in the rest of the world, the Christians are persecuted for the most part. And we don't realize that. And so we, when we read these books under a Roman dictatorship that Paul was under when he wrote these things, it doesn't really ring true to us. We don't really catch a lot of the nuances of what's being said. But the, but the reality is... As he said, we need to pray for those guys that are over us because they can take us and chop our heads off. That, that's just the Bill Tweed simpleton paraphrase. And, and so we, we really need to be praying for these guys. And so then it goes on and it says this, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God, in our sight too, who's our Savior. And then here's the ultimate reason why and the real reason why we need to pray for them so they're benevolent towards us so that we can go out and do this, the harvest. Now think about it. For who will have all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So in that scripture, what he's saying is we need to pray for those who are in authority. I know I go and lobby at the, at the Capitol all the time. And meet, I met with Joni Ernst this week. I met uh, two weeks ago with our, with our uh, attorney general and and, and talked about faith and talked about religious liberty, even talked about the Johnson Amendment and different things. And what I find is those, unlike Mr. Gronstall, who is the Senate Majority Leader, who's very anti-Christian issues, and Joni Ernst, who's a wonderful Christian lady, it's so much easier to go there. And I said, what, Joni, what would you have us to do as pastors? She says, I want pastors to get more involved, engaged in the civil arena, and tell their people to get it more engaged. Because we desperately, who are Christians, need your support. And I said, you've, you've got it. And, and, and I said, you know, we, we're already praying. And, and so it's, it's really true that we need to understand how important it is to pray for them so that we can have a good relationship with them so that we can operate in a peaceable environment so the gospel can go out and the harvest can be brought in. Can I get an amen? That's really what that scripture is talking about. And when, when, you, when you look at it and you see it in the context that Paul was living in, uh, it was so important. And that's why Proverbs 29, 2, it says, When the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. Everybody say, the people rejoice. And now they might not be the righteous in authority, but maybe we can pray them into getting born again, and then we'll have the righteous in authority. We can pray to send laborers to them. We can pray that sorrow leads to repentance. We can pray the darkness off of their eyes. We can pray that the gospel penetrates their heart and changes their lives. Because when the righteous in authority, the people rejoice. But when the wicked bear rule, the people mourn. And God mourns too. Because he doesn't want to see the wicked oppressing the righteous and therefore hindering the gospel. And that's why he says pray for them 
so you can live peaceably, so the harvest can come in, so people can go out and really, because God desires for all men to be saved. So that's really important that we understand that. You know, uh, I believe this. Does the Bible, you know, and I, I was asked this question. You've heard this before. Uh, how many of you, if you were asked today, who does the Bible say will bear rule? You know, so that's a confusing question, Pastor Bill. Because sometimes the wicked seem to bear rule. And then at other times it seems like the righteous. You know, David, he, he would bear rule. And then, you know, you'd, you'd have Ahab bear rule and and, and sometimes it was, you know, it was sometimes the good guys, sometimes it was the bad guys, Pastor Bill. The Bible, Bible seems kind of like uh, conflicted on that or something. I, I don't know. I remember when somebody asked me that question, I, th- I thought the same thing. But it's very clear. The Bible says the diligent shall bear rule. The diligent shall bear rule. Diligent to pray for our leaders to be Righteous. Diligent to vote for righteous leaders, to pray that God would give us righteous leaders, to raise up even in our churches righteous leaders, diligent to vote out wicked leaders, diligent to pray out wicked leaders, diligent to get involved somehow, some way that the Lord would guide you to get involved because as long as we stay diligent, God can bear rule through us. As long as the devil stays diligent, uh, or the devil's people, I should say, he will bear rule through them. Because when the wicked are in authority, the people mourn. How many would rather be rejoice than mourn this morning? Duh. All right, good. I'm glad to hear that. So uh, Proverbs 16, turn with me. How the, the Bible says the king's throne is established in righteousness. Now, I'm saying, what does this all have to do with prayer, Pastor? Well, I'm getting there. Just give me a couple moments. We're, we're going to get there. So let's look at this, and we can go over there uh, to Proverbs, the 16th chapter. We're going to look at... You know, Proverbs just talks about these things like all over the place. All right. Proverbs 16, 12 and 13. It is an abomination for kings to commit wickedness. For the throne is established by righteousness. Everybody say the king's throne is established in righteousness. Say that with me. The king's throne is established in righteousness. That is so important that we understand that. And what needs to be established in the king is righteousness. That, that way we can be established with God. And that throne needs to be established. God wants leadership to be righteous. God wants the throne of leadership to be established with a righteous person. He wants righteousness in those places so that people can rejoice and so the gospel can go forward and that we don't have to be oppressed. And, and it, as it talks about that, I, I really, I, it brings to mind Proverbs 14, 34, where it says that righteousness exalts a nation. Well, you really can't have a very righteous nation until you have a righteous king or a person that's established in righteousness. Established by getting the right guy in and voting him in or praying for the wrong guy until he repents or gets removed. But it's, it's up to our diligence for us to bear rule through that. And so when we understand that, we can see that you know it's righteousness that, that exalts a nation, not education, not economics, not military, not even equality and all these social issues that we talk about. And it's not even whether we have abortion or not or free speech because if you get righteousness right, all the others will get right. That's why righteousness exalts. Well, we think in America, the military and economics and and all these things and education system, that's what's going to exalt America. Sorry, that's wrong. If you don't have the righteousness part right, you can't get all the rest of it right. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom. And wisdom is the principal thing. So the principal thing begins with the fear of the Lord. And it says that's what righteousness is. So we've got to understand to get first things first, seek first the kingdom, and all these other things can possibly be added to us. So I believe this, that God wants us to have righteousness. And you know, the choice for righteousness, let me put it this way, the choice for righteous leaders is how we invite God to be with us. Turn with me to Exodus, the 18th chapter. We're going to look at this, and you say, we've heard some of this before, Pastor Bill, but you know, we need our minds stirred up by way of remembrance. You know, sometimes we've got to stir things up that are already resident in us, and that's why we meditate upon the word, lest at any time we let it slip, it says in Hebrews. So in Exodus 18 and 19, we've got, here is a, here's another picture. Moses was a type and a picture of governance. He was lawgiver, judge, and king, just like the Lord is our lawgiver, judge, and king. And those are the three legislative, you know, the three branches of government, legislative, judicial, and executive. 
And so here he is having a conversation with Jethro. Now, some of you conjure up ideas of the Beverly Hillbillies. No, not that Jethro. We're talking about Jethro, the priest of Midian. So we've got Jethro. Jethro is a priest. He's talking to Moses, who was their, really their civil leader and also their spiritual leader too, but he was a civil leader. And he's got all these people and he's having to adjudicate their cases all day long and he's just getting all worn out by it and he wants to quit and give in. So his father-in-law, who he worked for for 40 years out in the wilderness, who is a priest, who is a clergyman, comes to him and says, okay, Mr. Civil uh, Authority here, I, I need to talk to you about some things that you're missing. You're doing pretty good on a lot of it, but you're missing something here. And I'm going to point it out to you. In verse 19, he says, hearken now unto my voice. Wow. I mean, right there, he's a pretty confident guy. And you know, pastors need to be confident speaking to, I, I can't, when I love, I can't believe how much these people do not know about basic morality and truth. And we need to be speaking into people's lives about this. Hearken now unto my voice. I will give thee counsel, and God shall be with thee. You know, if, if you just stop there, you think, wow, he's pretty arrogant. You know, just listen to me, and God will be with you. But he gives him a list of things to do, and one of them primarily, which I believe is the most important, is verse 21. If you just drop down to verse 21, it says, Moreover, thou shalt provide out of all the people able men, such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness, and place them over to be rulers over thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers over tens. So what he was saying was this, choose you out from among you. In other words, not professional guys, able men. You know, choose out from among you. Don't, don't, don't choose a professional politician. They're, they're too good at, at not being truthful. Choose you out from among you, the common man. Able man. Able. Not the village idiot, as one person said. The person who's been a success at something. And then it goes on from among you, again, not career politicians. And it says, men of truth. In other words, men of the word. Jesus said, my word is truth. They fear God. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And then men that hate covetousness, and most newer translations say it hates bribery because the love of money is the root of all evil. So he laid down a basic foundation, a basic framework from which to judge and to choose men. Then he says to decentralize down to thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. Of course, we know decentralized government is small government. That's what works. Big government is what all the dictators in, in Russia and all the oppressive uh, leaders of the world do is formalize, you know, big government. God broke down big government when at the Tower of Babel. He broke it down at the flood when he decentralized the physical bodies of land because there was a one-world government at that time even in the days of Noah. So when we understand that, we can see that he's giving them a recipe for total success, which our founders took and ran with and became the most successful nation in the history of mankind which reflected ancient Israel, which is the only government, civil government ever prescribed and given specifically by Almighty God. When we understand that, we see that that's why God could be with them because they did it God's way. How many want to do it God's way? I just think that makes a lot of sense. He's the ruler of the universe. I think he knows a little bit about governance. And it says, and the government will rest upon Jesus' shoulders for eternity in the eternal state. I think he knows about governance. See, and we screwed up governance at the very first thing in the garden when God, you know, <laughs> mankind had a choice <laughs> between following and letting God govern him by saying, don't eat of the tree and governing themselves to not eat of the tree and following his governance. But instead, they rebelled against his governance and they ate of the tree and they followed Lucifer's or Satan's governance. So we've got to understand how key these principles are. So that's how we have God with us is to choose those type of men and to decentralize the government and to do those things. And then there's another place in the Bible that tells you how to kick God out of your country. Turn with me to 1 Samuel, the 8th chapter, and we're going to look there at some things. And it's very interesting what happened, and this is later on. God had been with them. He had ruled through the judges and the prophets. Things were uh, basically under God's law, under God's guidance, under God's man. And then one day in 1 Samuel, the 8th chapter, 1 Samuel, the 8th chapter, verse 4, we have the day that men kick, that Israel kicked God out as the means of governance. Then all the elders of Israel gathered themselves. When the elders have a meeting behind the pastors back, there's trouble in River City. 
Then all the elders, and praise God, we, we don't have any problems like that. Then all the, but some churches do. Then all the elders of Israel gathered themselves together and came to Samuel and to Ramah and said unto him, Behold, thou art old, and thy sons walk not in thy ways. Make us a king to judge us. Here's the key phrase, like all the other nations. And we know all the other nations were heathens. They were not under God's prophet. They were not under God's law. They were not under God's prescribed form of government out of Exodus 18, 19 through 21. You see, they rebelled. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed unto the Lord, and the Lord said unto Samuel, hearken unto their voice of the people in all that they say unto thee. They have not rejected thee, but they have rejected me. Here's how you kick God out of your country, is you choose worldly leaders. Give us a king like the rest of the world. That's the same as saying, get rid of the prophet, get rid of the man of God, get rid of the law of God, give us a king like the heathens have. And God says, that is not rejecting you, Mr. Samuel, that is rejecting me. When God's people choose a person who is worldly, And like the rest of the world, it's a rejection of God. It's not just a bad choice in governance. It's a rejection of God. When Bill Clinton was chosen, that's when the door to all homosexual, all the laws changed for homosexual. We just read about that yesterday. When certain people have gotten into office, there has been a major God rejection take place in our nation. Can I get an amen? Somebody. So we need to realize that there's a way to invite God into your nation, choose you out from among you. Men that fear God, men of truth and hate covetousness. Because Jethro said, if you'll do this, God will be with you. And there's a way to kick God out of your country, which is choose a God, ungodly worldly leaders like the rest of the world has, like the heathens, and it's a rejection of God. How many of you want to invite God into our country instead of kick him out? Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. So we need to understand how important these things really are instead of minimalizing and marginalizing anything that has to do with civil uh, governance and politics and so on and so forth. We need to bring it into a sanctified understanding and ruled by the word of God and have a word-ruled mind concerning these things and renew our mind to these things. So when we do that, things can change. And, you know, Ephesians, we've got the spiritual leaders, and it says God has set the church apostles, prophets, advanced pastors, teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry. So we know that there's spiritual leadership in the church. And in 1 Timothy 3, it says, if any man desires the office of a bishop, let him... And it goes on, it gives about 18 different character traits. 17 of them are character. One is ability, apt to teach. And then we go over and we have our civil leaders, Exodus 18. And it says, choose you out from among you men of truth that fear God and hate covetousness. And so you have leadership, then you have qualifications for leadership, both in the civil realm and in the spiritual realm. Now, when Brother Hagin used to teach on spiritual leadership, he used to preach on spiritual qualifications a lot, 1 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 15. He said, you know, here's the thing, folks. He says, nobody probably ever really 100% perfectly attains to this template, to this guideline. He says, we all, how many of you know, even pastors, we all fall short some days. You know, there's, there's days where I've said things where I, I, like toothpaste. I wish I could put it back, but it's just not going to go back in the tube. And, you know, there's just days where I've thought things and I caught myself thinking about things. And what are you doing thinking about that? There's some days where my confession uh, went from faith over to fear a little bit. I, and I'm sure that's never happened with any of you. But how many of you know we all fall a little bit short? But there's a template. There's a guide play. There, there's a guide, and it's... If anyone desires to be the office in the office of a bishop, let him first be the husband of one wife. Let him not be a brawler. Let him not be, you know, greedy or filthy. And all these things, it goes through this long list. And, you know, there's going to be pastors and there's going to be civil leaders that are not going to be perfect. Imagine that. That there's imperfect pastors that need prayer. Imagine that, that there's imperfect civil leaders that are going to need prayer. Can I get an Amen. And if you can't vote in the right guy, we need to pray a transformation to become the right guy. 
And I think that that's something we have forgotten all about. And there's some ways that we can pray that way that very few people think about, talk about, or exercise today. It's really disappointing because it's so clear and it's so front and center in the scriptures. And again, always remember when the Bible talks about the prophets, it's representing the preacher. It's always representing the church. The prophet always represents the church. When the Bible talks about the king, it's always talking about the civil government. The king represents, as a typological representation, the civil government. The prophet represents, typologically, the influence and the presence of the church, mainly through its preachers and prophets and those who speak on the behalf of God in the church. And so we need to pray for them. And, you know, that's why it says pray for all those who are in authority. You know, it isn't just civil authority. You know, let's, let's go back to our original text just quickly. Let's revisit that just for a second. Let's look at that, and let's see what it, it really says. Not what we kind of think it says, but let's see what it just really says. Because I think that's really important that you read Scripture like that. I exhort, therefore, first of all, supplications, prayers, and intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, and for all that are in authority. So there's, that's praying for fathers because they're in authority over the home. That's praying for pastors because they're in authority over the church. That's praying for civil authorities because they're in authority over the civil realm, the kings. So how can we pray... And how can we pray today our focus is on civil authority? So now we're getting mainly to where I can really talk to you about what we want to do. I think I've laid the groundwork. How we can pray for leaders. First, we must understand what the Bible says about the heart of the king. Turn with me to Proverbs 21.1. And now we can understand what it is that uh, makes the difference in the king's... And the king, again, we're talking about just civil authority. It says, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Barack Obama's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Hillary Clinton, Donald, potentially Donald Trump, Putin, if we really want to just go crazy, say Hitler. Really? Really? Sometimes God allows wicked kings to come over rebellious nations. That's not a comfortable thing to think about. Sometimes he allows that. But the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. And as rivers of water, he turneth it whithersoever he will. Now, if you're Calvinist, you'll think, well, that's just sovereignty of God. He just reaches down that king's heart and kind of makes him do it, and, and he doesn't even know, and he thought it was his idea. It was really God's idea because in predestination and Calvinism, that's how we... We see that. But then the Armenian would say, well, you know, that never happens because the only way you turn the king's heart is through working through men. And I'm more of an Armenian, and, and I'm, I believe they're both polarized positions, so I'm somewhere in the middle. But I believe this, that I've got scripture that tells me that God does nothing except we pray first. He says he turns the heart of the king, but the, the, the $64 million question is how does he do that? How does he do that? Well, my Bible says we have not because we ask not. John Wesley says it's not as though God can't, but it's clear, and it seems clear from what we observe, that he won't unless men pray. How many of you believe that today? God can do anything he wants, but he's chosen to put man in dominion over the earth, to give man dominion. And then secondly, God reveals everything to and through his prophets first. It says in Amos 3, 7, he does nothing but what first he reveals it to his prophets. And the prophets were the ones that went and turned the king's heart. Was that man? No, that was the Lord because the Lord told the prophets, the Lord empowered the prophets, and the Lord gave utterance to the prophets, and then God backed up the prophets when they spoke and turned the heart of the king. See, sometimes we've got to understand, we look at that and we say, oh, the heart of the king is in the hands of the Lord. The Lord, I'm abdicated from all responsibility. Lord, do it. Change his heart. It's up to you, Lord, because it says you change their heart. But that's like, you know, it says, you know, in John, how it talks about, behold the Lamb of God who taketh away the sins of the whole world. 
You think, well, God just saved everybody. Well, but we still have to go preach the gospel, don't we? How does God change men's hearts? It says that he's chosen by the foolishness of preaching that men be saved. Or you could say, or that men's hearts be changed towards God. Everybody say, by the foolishness of preaching. You know, the Bible says, you know, if we, if we sin, we have an advocate, the Father Jesus Christ, righteous, who is the propitiation of our sins and all of our sins, but the sins of the whole world. But then he also says, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believes and baptized shall be saved. He that believes not shall be damned. So we know that God has a part to play. He hung on the cross. He took away the sins of the whole world positionally, legally, before him in propitiation. But then he sends us out to preach the gospel to cause men's hearts to change, repent, receive the Lord, get born again, and then that forgiveness of sins applies to them. Does everybody get that this morning? Amen. You see, the same is true. He turns the heart of the king. But I'm going to give you example after example that he always sent a prophet to speak to the king to turn his heart. Can I get an amen? You see, you can look and you'll find that Nathan, and let's turn there to 2 Samuel 12, and we all know the story of Nathan when David got pretty mischievous. David got a little full of himself. And we see that David, one time when all the rest of the kings went out to battle, he stayed home. He was delinquent. And then he got distracted by a lady taking a bath on a housetop by the name of Bathsheba. And then he got disobedient and went and committed adultery with her. How many remember that story? And then he needed to get rid of the husband, so he put him on the front line, and he had him uh, basically, by manslaughter, had him murdered. And he was living a miserable life, and he was miserable every day after that. And God did something that was the answer to fix Israel's messed up leader, King David. Because he was a messed up leader. Everybody say, a messed up leader. He was prophet, priest, and king. David operated in all three offices. But look what it says. And verse 12, chapter 12, 2 Samuel chapter 12, it says, and the Lord sent Nathan. Everybody say, sent Nathan. Sent is the key word here today that we're going to really focus in on in our prayers. And the Lord sent Nathan unto David. And he came unto him and he said unto him, there were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. And he tells this long, quite involved story about how one guy had one sheep and the guy had all kinds of sheep and the guy that had all kinds of sheep went and stole the guy's one sheep. And then he, he culminates the story and says, what do you think about that jerk, David? What would you do? He says, that guy, somebody put that guy to death. Somebody needs to deal with that guy. And he turns to him and says, and guess what, King David? That guy is you. Wow. And then he begins to bring the word of the Lord. Everybody say, sent. Number two, the word of the Lord. And see, in verse 11, it says, And thus saith the Lord, that's the word of the Lord, Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against thee out of thine own house, and I will take thy wives before thine eyes and give them to others, thy neighbor, and he shall lie with thy wives in the sight in this sun. In other words, everybody's going to see it. Well, he rebukes him, and the next thing we see happening is verse 13, David repents. And David said unto Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said unto David, The Lord also hath put away thy sin, so thou shalt not die. So here we've got a rebellious. Now, David was a righteous man, but he really got into sin and rebellion. And he was a troubled leader. And his baby died because he committed adultery with Bathsheba. And if his baby could die because of his sin as a leader, you know that the nation was going to suffer bad things too under his headship. Under his watch, there was going to be bad things happening if he didn't repent. And it already he lost his own child. That's a starting of some pretty bad things. But he repented, and the leader, the king, was saved by the preacher or the prophet. Why? Because God sends preachers or prophets to kings to call them to repentance. Elijah, Ahab, I can give you a list a mile long, Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar. We can go on and on with that list, folks. 
I mean, on and on. It's very prevalent in the Old Testament. So let me give you another example. And that was a good guy where God turned the king's heart. God turned the king's heart through a preacher being sent to him. Let's go to an ungodly king. I mean, let's, let's choose a really nasty one. Let's go to Pharaoh. Let's go clear back to Exodus, the third chapter. And we're going to look at some things there, too. Exodus, third chapter. Now we've got a really oppressive, not just a guy that's in adultery and murdered somebody and his baby's due to die and, and there's bad things in the future of Israel. And, and, but now we're talking about a really wicked king uh, who is really a typology of Satan, Pharaoh. Egypt is a typology of the world and wickedness and sin. And Moses is a typology of Christ being raised up. We all know that. It's the biggest picture of redemption in all the Old Testament. It's the most pr- prominent picture of redemption that we have in all the Old Testament. And look what we see here in Exodus 3.7. And it says, And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people, which are in Egypt, and have heard their cry. Some translations have heard their prayer by reason of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. Now, 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 remember, they prayed for 400 years. They, they were under Pharaoh for 400 years, roughly. And they've been crying out, praying for 400 years. And nothing happened. How many think 400 years is a long time? How many think praying for 400 years is a long time? We pray for half an hour, it's like everybody's going, oh my gosh. When's the time to go home? years. That's a long time. Nothing happened. Wow. And then verse 10, look what it says we're saying. And come now, therefore, and I will send thee unto Pharaoh, he says to Moses. Wow. That thou mayest bring forth my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Until somebody's sent. I said, until somebody's sent by God. Nothing's going to happen. You see, nothing happened with David until Nathan was sent by God. Nothing happened for 400 years in Israel until Moses was sent by God. And then you can follow that that whole thing, and, and it gets very interesting. And you get over there into verses 18, and they shall heart, and he tells them to go, and they shall hearken to thy voice, and thou shalt. Come thou and thy elders of Israel unto the king of Egypt, and ye shall say unto him, The Lord God. Here's the word of the Lord. Everybody say the word of the Lord. Sent and then word of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord, God of the Hebrews, hath sent us, has met with us, excuse me, and to let us go, we beseech thee three days' journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord of God, that we may have our religious liberty, you might say. And then God says something that could have really deflated old. Good old Moses, he says. And I'm sure, everybody, Exodus 3.19, everybody listen real close in Exodus 3.19. And I'm sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go. (laughs) That's a negative confession, brother. Well, that's God said that. He says, I'm sure they won't let you go. And you think, well, God, then why are you sending me? Because they have to hear the word. How many of you know God commanded that Noah was a preacher of righteousness for a hundred years while he built the ark and there wasn't one single convert? There's a reason why God sends us to tell, to speak, so that he can bring judgment and they can't say, well, I didn't know, God. Yeah, you did. You see, and I'm sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go. No, not by my mighty hand. Not by a mighty hand. And then he says, but I'll stretch out my hand and smite Egypt with all the wonders which I will do in the midst thereof. And after that, he will let you go. See, and you see him doing it in Exodus 5.1. And afterward, Moses and Aaron went in and told Pharaoh, thus saith the Lord God of Israel, let my people go that they may hold a feast unto me in the wilderness. And he says, no, I don't know your God. I don't know anything about that. I'm not going to let you clowns go. He says, you are a good cheap laborer. And then what happens? God brings the ten plagues. And by the time it gets to the tenth one, all the people are saying, we're going to pay you all to leave. We're going to give you all of our silver and gold to leave. Just please leave. We've had the boils. We've had the blood in the water. 
We've had the frogs. We've had the sickness. We've had every plague under the sun. And now our firstborn is dead. And we'll do anything if you'll just leave this land. We will pay you. We'll give you everything we have. Just please leave. And King Pharaoh felt that pressure. And he let God's people go. How many know... This is where we can really look at Isaiah 55. It says, my word will not return void, but it shall accomplish that thing that it's sent forth to do. When they said, you better let God's people go, buddy, he he didn't have any idea how powerful God's word was. Somebody say amen. Amen. Speak to the mountain. Jesus said, Verily I say unto whoever shall say unto the mountain, Be thou removed, and be thou cast on the sea, and shall not die on his heart. But believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass. He shall have whatsoever he saith. And they said to the mountain that day, You're going to move. Because God told me you are. And they began to speak to it. And every time they went to him, they said, Let my people go. That's the word of the Lord, dude. Pay me now or pay me later. And they all came out, and there's not one feeble one from among their tribes, and they came out with silver and with gold, it says in the book of Psalms. How many think it's a good idea for Moses to go have a a conversation with Mr. Pharaoh? You can pray for 400 years if you want. By the time he sends somebody and they talk, then God's word gets released on the situation. You know, David, he might have never repented from his adultery and his murder. But when the word of God by Nathan comes and he's sent by God and he spoke the word of the Lord, then the word of the Lord can go into operation. Can I get an amen? See how important it is that we have people go and speak. We can pray and pray and pray, but we've got to vote, we've got to speak, we've got to do. Faith without corresponding action is dead. God turned the king's heart. Like it says in Proverbs 21. The heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it like water, whithersoever he chooses. You see, he brought sorrow. He said sorrow leads to repentance. How many of you know old Pharaoh got pretty sorry? How many of the Egyptians were pretty sorrowful when they lost their firstborn? How do we pray today then for the Nathans to go to the Moseses? How do we pray today for the... Uh, the Nathans, excuse me, <laughs> to go to the Davids and for the Moseses to go to the Pharaohs today. Because they're still kings and they're still, and they're still prophets. They're still preachers and they're still civil authorities. Nothing, there's nothing new under the sun. It hasn't changed, folks. Not one iota. See, we need to be in faith to send. Well, that's interesting because look what it says in Romans. Is there, is there a New Testament scripture for this sending business? Oh, I think there is a lot of it. I think that we need to really look at what the Word says about that because there's a lot the Bible says about sending. Turn with me to Romans, the 10th chapter, verses 13 through 15. And it says, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call upon him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? Everybody say sent. Jesus said in Matthew 9, 38, he says, Pray ye therefore that the Lord of the harvest would send, would send laborers into the harvest. Well, the civil authority isn't the harvest, Pastor Bill. Now, what did we read first thing? That when the civil authorities, when we pray for them, that we can live peaceably because God would that all men be saved. There's a direct connection between the civil authorities being prayed for and the gospel going out and the harvest being brought in. Can we all agree upon that this morning? See, part of the harvest, part of the precursor to the harvest, part of the more subtle part of the harvest is creating the environment for evangelism. Creating a friendly, civil environment, excuse me, environment for evangelism. We've got to create a friendly, civil environment for evangelism. Because the government can shut down our evangelism. And so we pray for those who make those decisions. We go speak to those who can make those decisions. See, Moses went and he spoke to Pharaoh. And the biggest picture typology of evangelism in all of history was played out for us in the Old Testament. Where Pharaoh's the devil, 
Egypt is the world. The Red Sea is like baptism of water. The promised land is like the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the promises of God and the blessings of God. And they all came out. That's the biggest picture. That's the biggest typology. That's the biggest message of the Old Testament is there had to be a change in the government had to let go because the preacher had to go speak and then all of God's people got saved. Can anybody see that? It's very important. So what are you saying? What's the end game here? The end game is we need to pray for laborers to go to the Donald Trumps. We need to pray for the laborers to even go to the Hillary Clintons. You know, I, I don't know who's going to win this election. Do any of you? But William Branham said 40-some years ago, after he predicted untold predictions... Like in the 40s, talking about cars that would drive themselves. Well, watch the latest Mercedes-Benz commercial. He also predicted that there would be a woman elected president of the United States, and there'd be utter destruction of our nation some 40-some years ago. Along with a whole bunch of other prophecies, seven of them, which all have come true, but those last, but two. Now, I'm not saying that it has to be. I'm not saying, but I know this. When we... You know, and, and here you've got a willing party. You know, David's a, David feared God. David loved God. And when Nathan came to him, he saw immediately his evil and how he needed to repent. And that's one scenario. But Pharaoh, he didn't believe in God. He didn't think he was wrong. He was a wicked old dude. And he wasn't about to listen to a prophet. But God can still have his way even with that person. Can I get an amen? If we pray and God sends. If we pray and God sends, and God commands us to pray that the Lord of the harvest would send laborers. And he says, and how can they hear without a preacher? And how can there be a preacher except he be sent? It says in Romans. You see, there comes a time where we need to start praying in line with God's word. God's word tells us to pray that laborers be sent. Well, that's not the Yeah, it is the precursor to the harvest. It is what affects the harvest. It has a lot of bearing to do the harvest. Go to all the nations where there's ungodly governments and see how much evangelism is going on. Come to America and see the only really godly government in the world and notice that we're the center of evangelism for the whole world. We've been doing 90% of the missions work throughout the world for the last 100 years. Oh, yeah, it does make a difference. The government makes a big difference. Go to China and try to set up and have mass evangelism. Go to some of these other countries where the government doesn't want Christianity and see how much mass evangelism you can accomplish. Somebody say amen. It's the truth. So we need to pray. And I don't care who who it is. I'm not telling you who, who to vote for today, but I'm telling you, we need to pray for whoever gets in and really for both of them. What does that look like? What does that look like, Pastor Bill? I'm going to give you one last scripture and then we're going to close because we're out of time. Turn with me to 1 Timothy, or excuse me, the book of Acts, I'm sorry. Turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 13. We're going to look at a modern-day Holy Ghost sending prayer meeting because we want to see, what does that look like, Pastor Bill? Show me what it looks like to pray for somebody to be sent. Well, I'll show you what it looks like. We'll have a a case in point. We'll have a model uh, to, to follow here because the Bible shows how God sent people to preach the gospel. And we all know the story. It says in Acts, the 13th chapter, now, there were in the church at Antioch certain prophets and teachers, and it goes through and lists them. In verse 2, it says, And they ministered to the Lord. That's praising and worshiping God. And they fasted. And the Holy Ghost said, Separate, where the Lord comes, Separate me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work whereunto I have called them. And when they had fasted and prayed, they laid their hands on them, and they sent them away. See, now that's physically they sent them. They, they physically, they, the human beings, sent them. And so by doing that, the Holy Ghost sent them. How many know the Holy Spirit's our helper, not our doer? He comes alongside to help. And so it says, so they being sent forth by the Holy Ghost. So the, the Spirit of God called them sending them, praying and getting a prophecy and sending them out. He called that being sent by the Holy Ghost, there in verse 4. So they being sent forth by the Holy Ghost departed unto Seleucia, and from thence they sailed to Cyprus. And, and when they were, all, excuse me, were at Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they had also John as their minister. Now keep listening. And when they had gone through the Isle of Paphos, they found a certain sorcerer, 
a false prophet, a Jew whose name was Bar-Jesus, which was the deputy of the country. He was, the dep- he, was a civil, he was in civil authority. And Sergius Paulus, a prudent man who called for Barnabas and Saul and desired to hear the word of the Lord. But Elamias the sorcerer, for so is his name by interpretation, withstood them seeking to turn away the deputy from the faith. The devil knows that if he turns the deputy, the civil authority from the faith, he can stop things. Notice who the devil, first of all, notice first who they were sent to. Sergius Paulus, who is a civil authority, a deputy. And look who it was the devil was trying to keep from hearing the word being preached by Saul. It was the deputy. It was the civil authority. The devil doesn't want the civil authorities to hear the word of God because they have massive influence over a nation. Johnson was the most wicked, one of the most wicked presidents we ever had, and he's the one that contrived this wicked Senate amendment that limits 501c3 uh, political speech to churches, which is a big sham, by the way. And look what, how it goes. And Elamias the sorcerer withstood them, seeking to turn away the deputy from the faith. There's been a force in our nation to turn away the civil authorities from the faith. Then Saul, who also is called Paul, filled with the Holy Ghost, set his eyes on him and said to him, O thou subtle, full of subtlety and mischief, Thou child of the devil, thou enemy of all righteousness, wilt thou not cease to pervert the right ways of the Lord? Now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon thee, and thou shalt be blind, not seeing the sun. First season. He didn't, he's not dallying out sickness. And immediately there fell on him a mist and a darkness, and he went about seeking some to lead him by the hand. Then the deputy, here's the civil authority, then the deputy, when he saw what was done, believed being astonished at the doctrine of the Lord. So who, when they prayed, when they sent out Paul, who was God sending him to? His first person that we have recorded that gets saved is a civil authority figure after he was sent. In the Old Testament, Nathan was sent by the Lord to David, a civil authority figure. Moses was sent by the Lord to Pharaoh, a civil authority figure. We need to pray that the Lord sends labors into the harvest. Yes, evangelism, but also starting with civil authorities because we're to pray for all men in authority and kings and all who are in authority. Let's stand up and we'll be closed this morning. Amen.